The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis chapter 31, verses 1 through 3, 17 through 36, 42 through 44, and 48 through 53, page 25 in your pew Bibles. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him his him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob arose and set his son, sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possessions that he had acquired in Padam Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. But Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he had intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. When it, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed closely after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban and the Amorean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me, and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away, because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take my daughters, your daughters away from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have, what I have that is yours, and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tents into Leah's tents, and into the tents of the two female servants. But he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all, felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have host hotly pursued me? If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters of my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all you see is mine. 
But what I can, but what I, sorry, but what can I do this day for these my daughters of, for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mirzpah. For he said, The Lord watched between you and me when we were out of one another's sight. If you possess my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar, which I have said before between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over, over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their fathers, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, and if, if this is your first time here to One Ancient Hope, we're, we're very glad that you're, you're here, and, and I do hope that you experience the warm welcome of this church. And as the church, as, as we will come to see as, as we look at this text, we are the people that have been called, created, crafted by the Word of God, the people who have been created by God's promise of, of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So with that confidence and in that reality, let us come before the Lord in prayer before we look at this text. God, our Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that it gives us. We pray, Lord, that as we look closely at this story, that you will help to apply the truths of who you are to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts knowing, Lord, that you work powerfully in fallen situations through the grace that you have given to us in your Lord, or in our Lord, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as, as we look at this text, I, I, I want to present it as two problems and one solution. We're going to find problem one, problem two, and then a solution that God gives, that rescues us and rescues Jacob from a very bad situation. And the first problem that I want to look at in the text is, is what I want to call the stealing of our hearts, the stealing of our hearts. Because interestingly, this text actually presents us with, with two successive, two connected acts of stealing. As John read, in verses 19 through 21, it tells us, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. Jacob fled with all he had. So we find here that Rachel stole Laban's household gods, and then we find that Jacob tricked Laban. But actually, if you look at the Hebrew, and, and trick is, is a good translation, but if you look at the Hebrew, we find literally Jacob stole Laban's heart. And in, in your Bible, you, you might find a footnote toward that end. So what we have here are two successive acts of stealing. Rachel steals Laban's household goods, 
And then immediately afterwards, we find that Jacob steals Laban's hearts. We find two thefts, and these are directly related. We find repeated acts of stealing, and what the text is calling us to do is to relate, to connect these two happenings together. And think about the Jacob narrative that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. Trickery and deception have been a constant occurrence throughout Jacob tricks Esau out of his birthright. Jacob tricks Isaac out of the blessing. We find that Laban tricks Jacob so that Jacob marries Leah instead of Rachel. And now Laban, Laban is the one who's been tricked by Jacob. But we're told this in the strangest of ways. We're told that Jacob stole Laban's heart. What can this mean? Well, the problem of, of disordered loves, that's, that's been kind of a constant refrain in this sermon series. Again, in the Christian framework, sin is not the love of a bad thing. There is no bad thing. God has created everything, and he's created everything good. But sin is loving some good thing, some lesser good, as our greatest good, and that causes us to use that lesser good in a wrong way. And so sin is loving some lesser good as God alone is meant to be loved. And so sin makes that lesser good into our God. And again and again throughout the Jacob narrative, this disordered love, this fact of disordered desires makes the persons open to trickery. It makes their hearts vulnerable to being stolen. Why was Jacob able to steal the hearts of Esau and Isaac? Because of their love of sensuality, their love of physical pleasures, they love those things above all else. They fell into trickery because of their over-desire for a meal. Why was Laban able to trick Jacob? Because of Jacob's over-desire for romantic love and for physical intimacy. And all of these things are good things. But none of these things are our very greatest good When persons set their whole hearts on some lesser good, they become vulnerable to deception. Their hearts are stolen. And now this is exactly what happens to Laban. And what is it that Laban loves most of all? Well, he desires above all else wealth and resources. We find in in chapter 30, the previous chapter, that, that Laban knows that his resources have increased because God is blessing Jacob, and Laban wants to keep Jacob under his finger. And in a sense, Laban wants the God of Jacob to be his servant, to work for him. Laban thinks that if Jacob stays with me, not only Jacob, but God himself will be my servant, both Jacob and God will work to bring me greater wealth, will work to bring me greater resources. And this makes perfect sense to Laban. To Laban, gods just are not meant to be our greatest love. Laban has these household gods, these household idols. Laban has these pagan gods, which are really just bigger versions of us. They're just more powerful, and Laban thinks, well, if I make them happy, then they give me what I want. If we obey them, then they give us our desires. If we obey them, they give us things like resources, wealth, marriage, health, harvest, success. 
The gods that Laban knows are gods that are simply means of getting something else. And I believe the text is telling us that this is exactly how Laban has come to approach the God of Jacob. Laban believes that his wealth and resources have increased because of these statues in his home. And now Laban knows that the God of Jacob is blessing him because of the presence of Jacob in his household. By keeping Jacob in his home, Laban believes he has a kind of control over the God of Jacob, just as he believes he does over the pagan gods by keeping statues of these gods in his home. The God of Jacob, Laban believes, is just like these other gods. This God is a means of getting what he wants. However, in our passage today, we find that Laban and Laban's sons no longer look upon Jacob with the same favor that they once did. In the previous chapter, chapter 30, we find out that Jacob has increased his own livestock at Laban's expense. And so Laban is now ready to be more forceful. He wants to keep Jacob around so that God will continue to bless his household, but Laban wants to keep Jacob himself from getting that blessing. We find in this text that Laban changed Jacob's wages 10 different times, and it looks like Laban is about to do the very same thing again. And Laban thinks there is nothing at all that Jacob can do about it. Laban appears to have a number of of men who are willing to pursue Jacob if he flees. Laban is willing to use force if necessary, and and Jacob knows that if he's traveling with children and with livestock, well, he's not going to travel very quickly, and it would be quite easy for Laban to catch up with him. Laban believes, in a sense, that he is holding both Jacob and the God of Jacob hostage. And so what is it that Laban is trusting in? Well, he's trusting in his wealth and his resources and this company of persons. These are the things that Laban has set his heart upon, and Jacob is a key means of getting more of these things. So when Jacob leaves, Laban's heart is stolen. That is, because of the theft by both Rachel and Laban, or and Jacob, Laban is left without any of these gods to seek the lesser goods that he so greatly desires. Something has happened that Laban never expected. God comes to Jacob and he tells him, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. And this is a dangerous command. It's one that will certainly provoke Laban's anger. And again, Jacob knows that Laban could easily catch up with him and could easily do him great harm. But Jacob has come to know the one true God. And so Jacob does something that Laban never could have imagined. Jacob flees to return to his homeland. And how is it that Laban is tricked? Well, because he set his heart on lesser goods. Laban believes because of his his wealth and because of his company of persons that he is in control of the situation, that he can tell everyone else what to do. But nonetheless, Jacob leaves. Jacob takes the wealth and the resources with him that, that Laban deems, that Laban thinks is his own. And so, not surprisingly, Laban pursues Jacob. But it's God that told Jacob to go, and it is God that will protect Jacob. 
Laban has been tricked because he set his heart on things that are less than God. Again, Esau and Isaac were tricked because of their over-desire for food, for sensuality, for physical pleasures. Jacob was tricked because of his over-desire for romantic love and intimacy. And now Laban is tricked because of his over-desire for wealth. And why is it that these things steal our hearts? Because when we seek and love these things above all else, we are at their mercy. As, as novelist David Foster Wallace explains uh, in his well-known graduation speech, this is water. Quote, If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. End quote. If we set our hearts on any of these things, our hearts will be stolen. These things can be taken away at any moment, and they're never enough because they never do what we think that they will do. Laban has enough, but Laban wants more, and all the wealth and resources that he has still can't keep Jacob from fleeing. Laban has much less control on the situation than he actually thinks. And Jacob himself, his life is far from perfect after marrying Rachel. Not only does he end up marrying four women total, something which the Bible is clearly condemning here, but we also see Jacob's anger kindled against Rachel. We, we saw this in the last chapter as she asks impossible things of him regarding childbirth. And sadly, Rachel will tragically die in the birth of her second son. Yes, he marries the woman he longs for, and yes, marriage is a very good thing, a very good gift from God. But marriage is more difficult than Jacob ever supposed, and death will soon take Rachel from him. And in these ways, our hearts are stolen. If we set our hearts on these things, we will find no peace in this world. We are going to be at the mercy of ever-changing circumstances. When our greatest love and trust is, some, is, is set on something that can be taken away at any time, how could we ever find a deep and lasting peace? How could we ever experience something besides deep, deep anxiety and worry? And one particularly prevalent form of this in our modern culture, I think, is, is our obsession with the news. Yes, as, as part of our civic duty, it's a good thing to be informed on the issues of our, of our public life together. But if you find yourself checking the news constantly, and if you find your mood going back and forth with every news story, then you have let the news steal your heart. You are at its mercy, and you will be tossed this way and that with each new political development. Yes, stay engaged in civic life, pray for our political leaders, even consider being a political leader. But don't rest your heart on politics. It's a good thing, and a just and rightly ordered society is something we should all seek. 
But we can't expect politics to provide and to secure the deep, deep needs of our humanity. Political fortunes are always shifting, even from day to day, and if we let it, politics will steal our hearts. So think about it. What is it that you love the most? What is it that you seek the most? If it's anything other than God himself, how could you ever have any lasting and enduring peace? But as Augustine famously tells us, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But there's another problem that we find in the text. And this brings us to our second point, our second problem. Problem number two, the unforgiveness of our hearts. Before Laban comes upon Jacob, God meets Laban in a dream. And God gives Laban a, a somewhat curious command. He tells Laban, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Well, as, as, as commentator Leon, Leon Cass notes uh, about this passage, what, it, what is here translated as, as good or bad is actually what we find in, in Genesis 3 when we find the description of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what's the connection here? Why, why, why would God be bringing up this notion of good and evil in connection with the tree? Well, why is it that Adam and Eve desire the tree? Well, they desire, and, and, and we ourselves desire, to make our own judgments about what is good and what is evil without any reference to God. We want to make our own rules, we want to make our own ethics, and we want to do so in such a way that we leave ourselves in the clear and in the right, and then we leave the other person guilty and condemned. We want to define good and evil on our own terms. And so what's the first thing that Adam and Eve do once they're confronted by God for their disobedience? Well, they blame the other person and they present themselves in the right. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, we do the same thing. We blame whoever is most convenient, and that's exactly what we see here with Laban. Verses 26 through 30 are one of the great blame-shifting speeches that we find in the Bible. Laban presents himself as a loving father, as a loving uncle, as a loving grandfather, and he says he's offended that Jacob left so quickly that he could not lavish affection upon his daughters and his grandchildren. But if you've been following this story at all, you know this is a far, far cry from reality. Laban has treated his daughters cruelly. He's treated them as property, and Laban has been unceasingly manipulative to Jacob at each and every turn. Yes, because of God's protection, Laban here refrains from violence and force, but he's still broken God's command not to say anything good or bad to Jacob. God forbids Laban to, to talk to Jacob in such a way that he uses his own rubric, his own criterion of good and evil, evil, and to attack Jacob by way of it. But Laban does it anyways. Laban just can't help himself. Laban is the constant blame shifter. And so Laban justifies himself, presenting himself as good and Jacob as bad. We are the same. This is the state of the fallen human heart. We define good and evil on our own terms, and then we end up, ironically, 
tragically, blaming others for the very same thing that we do. We see this much in, in modern culture, much especially in modern political discourse. And this is the case across the political spectrum. We do the very same things for which we blame that other group, the group that we deem the enemy. For example, philosopher Charles Taylor, he recounts an experience of a, of a friend from Thailand who went to visit a particular political party in Europe. And this group stood for good things, arguing for the dignity of all people, arguing for respect for all persons. However, uh, Taylor writes the following of his friend's experience, quote, He confessed to utter bewilderment. He thought he understood the goals of the political party, but what astonished him was all the anger, the tone of denunciation, of hatred toward the established parties. These people didn't seem to see that the first step towards their goal would have to involve stilling the anger and aggression in themselves. He couldn't understand what they were up to. End quote. This group rightly sought to combat hatred and aggression, but it sought to do so by way of hatred and aggression. And we see here a perfect mirror of Laban lecturing Jacob on how to treat his family well. Political discourse, which rightly calls for respect and dignity, is very often, and, and this is across the spectrum, the least respectful and dignified discourse in our modern society. Let me rescue you from fear and from hatred by speaking to you with the utmost fear and hatred. Yes, we are just like Laban. And even more, when we make the rules for good and evil, we put ourselves in the place of God, and this is a scary thing. The literature professor and, and writer Alan Jacobs points out that when we become our own gods, the biggest danger isn't actually what we might think. Our minds might immediately go to all sorts of, of unethical, un, uh, immoral practices, but Jacobs warns us of something else. We have to remember that the Christian God is a God who forgives. He's a gracious God. Yet, when we treat ourselves like God, we are not so forgiving and we are not so gracious. Jacobs, with special reference, special attention to social media, he writes the following, quote, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serves as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors." End quote. We used to be offended by a God of judgment, and now we are offended by a God of forgiveness. And I would much rather fall into the gracious hands of the one true God than of that of the Twitter mob, regardless of where that Twitter mob is coming from. And this makes sense because when we decide what is good and evil, we are extremely good at making the other person guilty and excusing ourselves. When we decide what is good and evil, we will never ever see ourselves in the wrong. Yet the one true God He's not only forgiving, unlike us, but he also has a much higher standard of justice than any of us. 
He calls all of us to account. He calls all of us to love God and neighbor perfectly. And clearly, this is not something that any of us do. And it's only if we understand ourselves as guilty before the perfect standard and justice of God and, and, and not the skewed and relative standard of our own hearts, only then will we truly be able to practice the Christian notion of forgiveness. Only if we recognize our own need for forgiveness will we be able to forgive as God intends. As Tim Keller writes, quote, you can only stay bitter towards someone if you feel superior, if you feel that you would never do anything like they did. Those who won't forgive show they have not accepted the fact of their own sinfulness. When Paul says he is the chief of sinners, he is saying that he is capable of sin just as much as the worst criminals are. To remain unforgiving means you remain unaware of your profound, perpetual need for forgiveness. And this is certainly Laban's situation, because what's his solution? Well, he makes a covenant with Jacob, and these are the terms. This is a heap of witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. You stay on your side, and I will stay on mine. You don't bother me, and I will not bother you. There's no reconciliation here. There's only a kind of stalemate. And this is the best that we can hope for in a world without forgiveness, in a world where we decide what is good and evil. But the God of the Bible, the God of Jacob, is a God of forgiveness. And he calls us all to reconciliation. Therefore, if there's a relationship in your life that needs repair, please don't be like Laban. His approach is, I won't go there, and you won't go here. And in that sense, our relationships can reach a kind of stalemate. But if there are hurts or disagreements in your past that you've decided to ignore rather than discuss, please, I encourage you, don't be like Laban. Don't say, I won't talk about that if you won't talk about this. That's not the way that relationships in the church are supposed to be. If that's the case, then there can be no healing. There can only be a festering of hurt and bitterness. And, and yes, it may take time, and this can be a very painful and difficult process. But ask yourself, are there conversations that you need to have? And if conversations are needed to repair these relationships in the church, in, in this church specifically, please have that conversation. We are the church. We are not a Twitter mob. We are people who recognize that all of us are in need of the forgiveness from God. And if you are refusing to have conversations in person that you need to have, then you are not living out the truth of the God who forgives and the God who has forgiven you. Because friendships in the church, they're never supposed to exist in this kind of stalemate. They're meant to be friendships of deep love and humility and grace, as Christ himself tells us. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And perhaps nothing in our modern moment expresses this love more powerfully than acts of relational reconciliation and forgiveness. And this pushes us to our third point, our solution.
the God who gives and forgives. So again, in this passage, we've been presented with Laban's household gods, these false gods, these idols, the idols that Rachel steals from Laban. And these gods present us with two problems, the two problems we've talked about. Problem one, when we set our hearts on lesser goods, our hearts will be stolen. This is the way of the gods of Laban's house. You serve them, they get what you desire, they give you good things like wealth, success, romance, physical health. And this is how Laban comes to treat the God of Jacob. He's just another means to get what he wants. But we can't hold on to these lesser goods. If we set our hearts upon them, they will steal our hearts. Our peace and security will always be at their mercy, and they will leave us with worry and anxiety, always wondering when are they going to be taken away? How can I hold them more tightly? And problem two is the problem of unforgiveness. Recall in the passage that when Jacob finds out that the gods are stolen and he doesn't know that Rachel was the one who took them, Jacob says the following, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Just as with Laban and as with us, these are gods that do not forgive. Why? Because they are expressions of our own hearts. They are expressions of our own over-desires for lesser goods, and they are expressions of our own self-justifying verdicts on good and evil. The one who has taken these gods shall die. There's no hope of forgiveness here. And again, these gods just are the expression of our desires, our over-desire for lesser goods, and our unforgiving desire for vengeance, a vengeance that justifies ourself. And these gods will steal our hearts and they will take our lives. These gods will destroy us. Again, these gods just are the expression of our disordered loves, and they will undo us and leave us miserable, anxious, and condemned. However, we also find a different God in this passage. We find the one true God, the God who gives our hearts certain and unbreakable peace, the God who forgives us by giving his own life and not taking our life. And this God is the exact opposite of the false gods of Laban. Who is this God? Well, it's interesting because here we have a, a title for God that we don't find anywhere else in Scripture, and we have it two times. In verses 42 through 53, Jacob refers to the fear of Isaac, the fear of Isaac. And this is actually a special Hebrew word for, for fear. It's not, for instance, uh, the word you find in, in Proverbs where it tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is something different. And as one Hebrew dictionary article translates the word for this phrase, the fear of Isaac, it translates it as terror. And it notes that it often describes people's reaction to the judgment of God. But the dictionary, it, it also notes that this word can also be used to describe extreme rejoicing. And so it also translates this word for fear as joy. As the dictionary explains, this term, quote, can describe both the quaking terror, sorry, it can describe both the quaking of terror as well as the quaking of delight or joy. But how can this be? How can it be translated as both terror and joy? Which one is it? Is it terror or is it delight? Well, it's both. And in fact, each one assumes the other. 
As the article goes on to explain, quote, the terror of the Lord's judgment is antithetically related to the joy of his salvation. Again, God calls us to a perfect justice, one that calls us all to account. We're all guilty before the perfect standard of justice and love of God. None of us have loved God and neighbor perfectly. And even more, as as fallen human beings, we're tempted to decide what is good and evil on our own terms, verdicts that leave us innocent and the other guilty. And so we're also tempted to make our standards of justice less than wholly perfect. But not God. His standard is perfect, and this is reason for our terror. We are condemned before God. And so we might ask, if that's the case, well, aren't we better off with Laban's household gods? I mean, they only condemned the person who, who stole them, but, but this God, well, he condemns us all. He calls us all to account. And it's here that the terror of God's judgment gives way to delight. Unlike the false gods who take our life, God gives his own life. That's why specifically we have the title here, The Fear the terror and the delight of Isaac. What's Isaac's terror? Well, remember our earlier sermon on Genesis 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Isaac is to be killed. Isaac is to be condemned. And Isaac accepts this. He lets himself be bound. He lets himself be placed on the altar. Isaac knows that he's guilty before this perfectly righteous God, and in a great act of humility, Isaac accepts this judgment. Isaac accepts the terror of God's judgment. However, God also provides a substitute. God tells Abraham not to sacrifice his son, and he instead provides a ram. Isaac has been spared. He's been saved from the judgment of God. And Isaac delights in God because he has reckoned with the judgment of God. God is both Isaac's terror and delight, and in fact, he's Isaac's delight because he was first Isaac's terror. And the same is true for us. We deserve to be on that altar with Isaac. We too deserve the punishment of God for not living this perfectly just life. But God again provides us a substitute. God himself became human and took that punishment upon the cross. That is what Christ has done for us. So then, look, look at the cross. The cross is our terror. This is the punishment that we deserve. But then look again at the cross. The cross is our delight. This is the judgment that God has taken upon himself so that we can receive his salvation, that we can receive his love and mercy, that we can be forgiven. God himself has taken upon himself the judgment that we deserve for each and every way that we have failed to love God and neighbor. And so God forgives us. He's done what the false gods cannot do. And how do we receive this forgiveness? By confessing our sins, by repenting from what we have done, and by placing our faith in Christ Jesus and trusting in him. Think about it. How did Rachel escape the death sentence from the false god? She lied. She lied to her father and she hid what she had done. 
if there's no forgiveness, then the only way to be at peace with anyone is to hide, to lie, to cover up. There's no place for confession here, no repentance of sin. There's only hiding. Either hide or be dismissed, denounced, destroyed. Where there's no forgiveness, there can be no openness, no honesty, no admission of struggles, no confession of sins, no true and lasting reconciliation. But if God has taken our guilt, if he has forgiven us, then we are free to confess to God and to one another. We don't have to hide like Rachel hid. Our God is the God who forgives, but he's also the God who gives rest. If God has given his life to us in Christ, then we also know that he will never leave us. While the lesser goods of romance or physical health or finances or professional success or a million other things may go at a moment's notice and steal our hearts in the process, we know that we can never lose God. He promises to be with us always and to work all things in our life so that we are conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. Therefore, if we are in Christ, we are never outside of God's love and plan for us, and our hearts, our hearts can rest fully on him. No matter what happens, he is with us. That should give us a deep peace that prevents us from ever being, our hearts, sorry, from ever being stolen by the passing lesser goods of this world. Yes, there is still plenty of deep, deep lament. It's a painful thing to lose the lesser goods of this world, and they are, in fact, good. God has given them to us, and when we receive them, we should do so gladly and gratefully. But our deepest joy and peace and security, God himself, can never be taken from us. Our God is the God who forgives and gives us, gives our hearts the rest that can never be stolen. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you give us deep, deep rest, that you give yourself to us fully and completely, that you become our foundation, that our hearts can rest upon you, and that you can never be taken away. Help us to know what that means more and more, that we might have deep and lasting peace and security. And Father, thank you that you are a God who forgives. And because of that, help us to forgive one another. Help us to lean into relationships, however uncomfortable. Help us to have those discussions and conversations we need to have because we are your people. And because you have reconciled us to you, you work to reconcile us to one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.